There's many things I love about double cropping. One of them is that you're keeping a crop on the ground for more of the year. So just from an environmental perspective, you see all of the prescribed benefits of cover crop. Well, great. Cover crop that also is producing an economic return or a higher economic return. I think the other very excellent thing here, too, is that you're matching key crop times to when sunlight is most available in the Northern Hemisphere. And just thinking from first principles in this space is, I think, super important for increasing crop returns and improving the system in general. And so this is one where in this region for this time frame, everything kind of seems to line up to a cropping change that's going to be massively or at least moderately beneficial. Welcome to Fall Line Field Notes, a podcast exploring the intersection of technology with agriculture and food. We're your hosts, Eric O'Brien. And I'm Clay Mitchell. In today's podcast, we talk with Chris Seifer. Chris is an expert in crop modeling, statistics, and global agriculture. Chris is our go-to guy for a lot of the big questions in agriculture on cropping system optimization, what should be grown where, what opportunities are there for increasing yields in crops. Chris applied his technical expertise at Climate Corp before it was acquired. Then he went back to Stanford, got his PhD, and started Acre Value, a tool for farmland valuation that he sold to Granular. He stayed with Granular through its acquisition by Corteva. This conversation explores how to develop technology for the highly discerning agriculture market and how to create value for farmers. Chris also highlights how climate change has altered cropping practices. We begin our interview with Chris discussing working on his family's farm before creating Acre Value and how that inspired his career path. It was a very interesting time. I think the inspiration for Acre Value came out of you know, both on my mom's side, the grandparents' farm. We were trying to debate whether it was time to sell or whether the market had peaked or not. There wasn't much data that folks could bring to the conversation. And I knew what sorts of data sets and what sort of model might be able to give some answers and help the very emotional conversation proceed in a good way. Plus, on my dad's side of the family, my aunt has a little bit of farmland as well. And I saw her pulling up soil reports and that those cost $35, which I knew how to get from Web Soil Survey for free or how to provide to farmers a lower cost than I saw on the market. So put that together, plus some friends that could help me build out a prototype and uh, help present that to you all. And it was performant, partially because the server was sitting 10 miles away in my garage, which was so much fun at the time and a lot of fun to build that way versus you know, being out in the cloud and whatnot. This is mostly a fun project, but you all help see the commercial potential and that maybe also having a go-to-market presence and marketing and sales and everything else and introducing me to Sid and the granular team was a great move. Mm-hmm. You know, something about farmland that makes it unique in real estate is you don't have the equivalent of a corn suitability rating or productivity index in residential or commercial real estate. So, For those who aren't familiar, this is a rating based off soil types of how productive the land is, and it's on a state-by-state basis. So Chris and I both come from Iowa, where the corn suitability rating, which is a score up to 100, is a score that investors often use as a a measure of the farmland quality. It was uh, one of the things that we observed initially when we were starting Fall Line, there was a weakness in this kind of a, a scale in that being static, if somebody degraded the farmland, the CSR did not go down. If somebody improved the farmland, the rating didn't go up. It also doesn't adapt to changes in farming systems or technologies. As you built a database for measuring farmland transactions, estimating farmland values, how did you incorporate productivity index, CSR, and you know, do you view that today as a very useful measurement? I think it is a useful baseline to begin from and a useful heuristic to try to read the market. But 
so many of the other factors for how the land is managed, what the easements are across the land, whether it's close to infrastructure or far away, matter even more in many circumstances than that baseline figure. Right? You can have a great CSR, but the drainage is a total mess and absolutely needs to be redone. And that's going to definitely hurt the value of the land or neighbors that are a huge pain to work with and, and cause problems on the property that may also reduce values. And I think I would trade in many circumstances having that nice CSR baseline for Iowa and other soil indices for, for other places for, say, the frequency of sales that you see in the residential market. So in building out a residential valuation model, you have houses that are roughly comparable, turning over a few percent a year. Farmland, you so rarely see clean sales that are outside of families. I'm sure you guys encounter that in the market all the time, that getting a nice set of comparables is one of the biggest challenges in that space. Mm -hmm. So some of the factors you're mentioning outside of CSR are you know, factors you would build in maybe a hedonic pricing model where you're creating a regression with other measurable factors. So, you know, we have seen papers looking at whether or not you're on a hard surfaced road, the, you know, distance to a school, a lot of amenity values, what county you're in can make a difference. And, you know, I think these can be separated out. I'm curious, particularly in, as we look at the influence of productivity, if we just kind of separated out all the other factors, do you think those ratings are a useful measurement of productivity or, you know, what's their weakness there? Yeah, I think the weakness in many places is that the underlying soil data is not as precise as many think it to be. And you can see times where the Sergo maps haven't been maintained or don't line up with conditions on the ground. And then, again, it's not reading on the current irrigation infrastructure or other interactions that can add value to the land. And so I think a better read on, on so much of land value is what, say, a remotely sensed yield model can show for the corn, soybean, or other crop seals that are being realized on the ground. Chris, you had access at a certain point in your academic career to data on productivity that was effectively direct measurement data as opposed to making judgments about productivity from soil maps or other indirect data. Can you tell us a little bit about that data set and what, if anything, you learned from it relative to some of these other indirect means of trying to measure productivity on land? Yeah, I had the privilege very briefly of having access to crop insurance yield data and was able to bring that data down to the unit level. And that was hundreds of thousands of rows of observation and allowed for look at practice change on that sort of scale. So one of the simplest ones to look at was crop rotation and how that affected yields and being able to say, oh, here is what corn on corn versus corn on soy is doing in certain areas and what those big benefits are. That was a major way of using data at that scale. I think there are other data sets out there of that sort of magnitude that can help get at the management questions. I think some of the probability or some of the problems in this space is that everybody thinks that the information that they have is going to give them a big advantage and doesn't want to share openly. I think that happens in the farmland market a lot, where both buyers and sellers say have a bunch of private information about a property that they both think is, you know, hugely advantageous. And a low information market is one that tends to be very inefficient. 
when you look at the capabilities of remote sensing with respect to productivity, I think our observation has been of companies that have presented solutions to us while they have very strong theoretical bases in quality of measurement, when we actually test products or services against our own field boundaries and the data that we have of productivity and practices on those fields, we find, let's say, charitably, the data that they generate is pretty noisy. What have you observed in the capabilities of remote sensing, quality of remote sensing, and then how do you see that evolving in a world where, with the advent of AI and ML models, like, are we able to do things from a remote sensing perspective that you think will close the gap on that noise in a meaningful way? Sure. So I think when I began some of my career in remote sensing, Landsat was the normal platform that everybody used as an academic baseline. And it has a whole host of issues, whether that's a very low repeat time, not very great resolution. You had one of the Landsat satellites that had a technical issue that looked like a bad uh, set of lines when you're having a horrible TV signal. And a major advent that came in was CubeSats and the promise of higher resolution, better repeat times. And that's improved, I think, a lot of the data products that we're getting out of the space. But there's been a, a trade-off with some of those where you see a lot of users out there complaining about the quality of some of the off-the-shelf hardware that goes into certain parts of these platforms. And that's something that these companies, even though that they're getting better metrics for repeat time and resolution, have had to also adjust for in their fleets that they've put out there. So I think as we see newer and newer iterations, that's another one of these great advantages for CubeSat platforms is they can iterate at a faster speed than, say, Landsat or major government programs. We will hopefully see those data products increase in quality. You're touching on some elements of how customers were finding value in the software. And I think this is something that we can maybe generalize a little bit to the entrepreneurial community who may be listening here and interested in ag tech related startups and software products, maybe in particular. Talk to us a little bit about that needs finding, you know, discovery of product market fit, and maybe some of the uh, lessons learned in that process. Yeah, for me, I mean, I am privileged to have a, a number of family friends who farm, cousin who's, you know, got the farm on my dad's side, etc. And getting that honest feedback and advice is one of the biggest challenges in the space. You'll set appointments with farmers and have them demo your products and it'll be pretty frequent. They'll say, oh yeah, that's interesting. Oh yeah, I could see something like that working. And getting buying intent is such a challenge. I think that spending time building those relationships, going back to those same people time after time, whereas some of the best practice in user research spaces to not necessarily go back to the same well, is one of the things that isn't necessary in building agricultural software as opposed to software in other domains. So, Chris, we were talking earlier about the data set you had access to when you were doing your academic research. And I think just to clarify for the audience, maybe a little bit of the chronology of your academic research time versus when you started Acre Value, when it became part of Granular, when Corteva acquired Granular. Help us understand the sort of parallel paths that were going on with respect to the academic things you were doing and then the startup-related things you were doing. Yeah, I think one of my greatest passions is obviously in the adaptation of our agricultural system 
to a changing climate and what's about to happen there as we see temperatures increase. Obviously, the global south is already pretty heat and water constrained. And you see crops taking more water to get to a harvestable state, as well as the basic Clausius-Claffron equation and the air holding more water and therefore larger precipitation events and more extremes. I think that I've been trying to balance places where ideas I have in that space are commercializable and I can spin into something like acre value in places that need to be you know, clearly separate from that and can end up in the academic literature. So Chris, help us understand your background from an academic and for-profit perspective. What came first, the acre value or the PhD? And help us tease apart what you were pursuing on the academic side and then what you're doing on the private side. Yeah, this was a complicated time in my life in which I was doing both. The non-commercial ideas went into papers and into the academic literature. And the commercializable content came out there in the form of features and feature candidates for agricultural software. So this is something where I've had a huge passion around helping the world's agricultural system adapt to climate change. And both of those avenues, the academic side and the farmer-facing side, I found to be fruitful in, in doing so. Yeah, that's great. And for us, from a climate perspective, people often ask us, how do we build climate change into our underwriting? And it's at some level a simple answer, and at some level it is kind of complex. But you know, in general, I think our observation has been that weather volatility has increased, but that we can look at temperature change trends and you know use those as a basis for making some prediction about which direction things are headed from a region to region perspective and it's one of the reasons why we you know have been relatively bullish on northern latitude farms and then in the southern latitudes uh, in the south the US you know we're really focused on how enhanced or increased volatility of weather affects a particular farm with respect to water and getting it on and getting it off curious though from your perspective in general maybe any observations you have around climate change with respect to agriculture and what are the sort of high lever things that you think people should be focused on and maybe help us put some perspective on some of the climate doomsayers or the sort of Pollyanna, it's all going to be fine. Sure. I think one of the biggest things in this whole system is to look at the nonlinearities. So if you say, hey, we've experienced one degree C of warming to date, Hopefully, we'll stop things at one and a half, and hopefully not two. What does a crop experience in a one degree C warm environment? And so many corn, especially crops, experience accumulated thermal time and the way that they age. And so one degree C can end up being an additional 130, 140 growing degree days, which really does help accelerate those northern latitude crops and those investments further north. I think what's so nice is you, know, you can put that into the academic literature and then you see folks in the private sector do things like putting some of the best genetics into shorter day corn and helping increase yields even more in response to new areas where it's suitable to grow corn or changing their infrastructural plans on a 30 or 50 year time horizon to say, hey, if we can double crop in new areas, 
do we need to change the infrastructure for bringing those crops at scale to market? And where's the money there on that investing time horizon? Mm -hmm. When you think about areas in the U.S. or globally, when we think about major agricultural production regions, are there some that stand out to you as kind of like, this is the best opportunity for expansion, and here are the areas that, you know, are probably most worrisome in terms of longevity of productivity? Yeah, I think the literature here has been relatively consistent for decades now, where so much of the global north sees a neutral or even positive outcome from the changes that are coming down the pike. And so much of the global south is hurt because these countries are already at the high end of the temperature thresholds that you'd be expecting for them to grow their major crops. And trying to find places within that where you might find certain microclimates that are now suitable to grow avocados or dates is one thing that a micro-investor can do. While riding the backs of these big trends is something that is you know, often more suitable for, uh, say, a large processor or something that a company is going to make a large infrastructural decision. Chris, double cropping has been important within our portfolio in parts of the, the country where it hasn't been commonly practiced, but we've got the weather resources for it. You've done some work at Stanford with David LaBelle looking at regions where double cropping could be expanded and also kind of forecasting into the future where it may be possible in the future that it isn't today. You know, what are your current thoughts on the opportunity for double cropping and helping create a more resilient food supply? Yeah, I think one of the things that, I mean, there's many things I love about double cropping. One of them is that you're keeping a crop on the ground for more of the year. So just from an environmental perspective, you see all of the prescribed benefits of cover crop. Well, great. Cover crop that also is producing an economic return or a higher economic return. I think the other very excellent thing here, too, is that you're matching key crop times to when sunlight is most available in the Northern Hemisphere. And just thinking from first principles in this space is, I think, super important for increasing crop returns and improving the system in general. And so this is one where in this region for this time frame, everything kind of seems to line up to a cropping change that's going to be massively or at least moderately beneficial. And what do you see as the future role of controlled environment agriculture in meeting food security? Yeah, I think a lot about the price elasticity of how different crop prices can cause their own production to increase. And to me, driving those investments in tile, in irrigation, and even at the extremes in helping control ag systems by enclosing them, as you see in you know, southern Spain or in the Netherlands, is what humanity naturally will and would do as prices for grains, other crops increase with time. I think it's also a great opportunity for some nonlinear benefits in place because when you're adding control systems to agriculture, you can also optimize that control using digital tools. So you see that happening with folks putting sensors on the pivot. You see that happening with boats putting sensors in their drainage systems in fields and helping manage water both on the too much and too little side more precisely at a lower cost than has ever been possible. So I think those plays are super interesting in a changing climate. I think also within the soil itself, you see great opportunities to invest in soil carbon and to help use the soil itself as a buffer against high and low precipitation events. 
and the nonlinear returns that those strategies get in a climate where, you know, in the last 50 years, your chances of a three-inch rain have doubled, right? Or your chances of having a long dry spell in key parts of the season are also changing. Having those soil buffers, especially, and controlling the water in that environment is absolutely going to be, I think, the most critical thing that agricultural practitioners and funds and everybody else can come together and orient around and do. Yeah, you're touching on some, I think, interesting observations around how farmers can adapt and how technology can help farmers adapt to changing circumstances. Any thoughts? You can't turn around today without seeing another article about how AI is going to impact every element of how we live. But if we focus in on agriculture, you know, with your data science background, where do you think the impact opportunities will be from advances in data analytics, AI, et cetera? Sure. So, I mean, you take a look at the implications for transformer architecture and what you can do. There's been a couple of very cool papers in Nature recently from groups saying, hey, this is how we're going to change our weather prediction based on this new architecture that exceeds or matches what a numerical weather model can do with less compute. I think that that is pretty compelling and a vision for how some of the advances on the AI side can help farmers and other folks making decisions in the space make better ones. Any other technologies that you've seen emerging that you think will be you know, put into commercial use and adopted significantly over the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I think already, if it can be reduced to a computer vision problem, there's probably somebody working on it in the space to get a commercialized product behind that. And there are so many little niches where that can have a huge impact, whether that's in manual activities happening and, you know, fruits and nuts, whether that's on the spraying side of things. That's a really big one, obviously. I think the other compelling thing happening, getting a little further afield from some of my core work, is in drones and in saying, this is the future of aerial application as power-to-weight ratios improve in that space. And as we're able to modify crop inputs to be suitable for putting onto that platform, I think that's another powerful way forward. I think one of the things that has been a bit of a cause for vexation in my career is what impact can data have on the physical domains and in farming in general? I've encountered so many entrepreneurs that I mean, even wanted to do something back in the last hype cycle around blockchain for, for agriculture and dissuading them from taking that on and doing so and saying so much of what that enables requires a purely digital good has been, you know, one of my tasks back in the day. But then going on the other side of that and saying, hey, where are folks making decisions that are purely data-based? How can we improve that data is a bigger cause. You touched a little bit on this, but what areas would you say from a software, data analytics, AI perspective are overhyped in ag and maybe a little bit too far ahead of their time? Yeah, that's a challenging question. I don't want to speak poorly on too many of my colleagues. I think I can speak to some general challenges in the space, which is there is a lot of benefit that new technologies can bring to ag, but adoption curves can be somewhat slow. And bringing in patient capital to think through 
what that curve is going to be and what those returns to companies are going to be. Looking at longer-term planning than is typically out there in, in this space is um, one of the challenges that agricultural entrepreneurs face that others don't. Chris, I think it's notable that you're in the small minority of experts with a deep expertise in remote sensing of farmland who is not uh, selling carbon credits based on carbon sequestration estimates of the farmland. Yeah, I have a complicated relationship with carbon credits. I think, to me, there is so much good in that space, but I worry about bad actors undercutting people that are trying to do good. I think one of the things I've learned over my career in agriculture is because it's a systems level problem, you can always find something negative there. And to try not to, as an optimist, let the perfect say be the enemy of the good is something I'd encourage everyone in the space. And in this space in particular, I think figuring out a high rigor set of standards that the market in general can enforce is one of the biggest ways forward and challenges. You know, on controversial topics, you, I think, and David also wrote a paper on the yield drag of soybeans on soybeans compared to corn on corn. That's a hot one in the farming community. Yeah, I mean, we saw some relatively extreme effects in the data. Now, to that systems level question, there's a question of where are people actually doing soy on soy? And a lot of the time, that's in the fields that you wouldn't want to invest in anyway, right? Like river bottoms that are going to be flooding a lot. And for our methods, I think it's a little bit difficult to distinguish whether that yield hit we're seeing is due to some exogenous factor like that. Like, yeah, we're not going to, you know, put much money into that land. We want to crop on it. It's soybeans. And you're seeing negative yields there relative to other places. Yeah, that certainly is the case in the central corn belt. I think in the southern U.S., there are spots where that is just the common practice. And you'll see on uh, cropscape areas that have been 10 years or 11 years of continuous soybeans, but your agronomic pattern there simply may not map to other areas very well. Yeah, that's fair. I want to come back to the um, application you mentioned around AI potentially impacting weather modeling. This is an area I don't really understand particularly well, sort of how the current models work and what the impact that AI would have. Or is that something that you can shed some light on as to sort of, first of all, maybe how in general do today's weather models work? How would these new models potentially change that? And how far do we think in the limit we can take this in terms of predictability of weather? Yeah, I think when you look at the medium to long-range models, you know, for medium-range models, you have nice numerical weather prediction that has seen a steady march forward in quality in the last decade. So there are some great papers out there about how ECMWF and other folks are silently crushing it, and how five-day weather predictions now are as good as two-day used to be. And that march continues. When you get further out into the future, so many times folks are looking at teleconnections or more statistical work. I think one of the key things, both in climate modeling, but then also in crop modeling, is trying to combine that statistical work or AI machine learning, if you're you know, going for the buzzier terms, with the hard physics of a numerical model. And to me, that's the holy grail for these papers that have started to say, we have a technique that is showing promise and bringing the best of those together to increase performance. Is it the case that the traditional models have continued to become more accurate, even in the face of increased weather volatility that we've seen? 
I would imagine that like there's actually more noise in the system now to make it even harder for traditional models to be predictive. Yeah, so the skill increases are relatively incontrovertible. And yes, that has happened in the background of everything else going on, which is pretty incredible in my mind. Chris, what topics are you focused on these days in your work? What are the areas that are most exciting to you, both personally in terms of pursuit career-wise, and then maybe generally in open it up to the ag industry at whole at large? Yeah, I think when I think of the way that my knowledge can help influence the space, one of the things that I'm able to do is help work with farmers and different companies to say, where is a new innovation, a new product working, and where is it failing? And developing rigorous statistical methods to say, this is working in a in central Minnesota, but it is failing when you have, you know, more than 2,800 growing degree days. Let's talk about what are the biological reasons that could be the cause behind this. And so bringing some of that testing to the plethora of new products out there is one of the things that I really love doing and seeing what works with uh, a lot of the farmers that I know and allow me to test on their fields and farms. As a farmer, the question is always, gosh, do I put out a thousand different plots testing, you know, all these combinations of products, or do I just go to the most credible resource? That's the trade-off. And, you know, you're always going to be comparing some of the big macro differences. You're always going to be looking at, at varieties, but it's incredibly management intensive thing to do a lot of intensive trials on a farm. So, you know, I've always seen, uh, you know, university extension and research playing the critical role there. Yeah. Sometimes I think about the U.S. extension system and how strong it is. And you'd almost be surprised looking at that and looking at the proliferation of farm data that there hasn't been a data cooperative that's come in. And there are folks that have tried and are even trying currently, and I don't want to denigrate their efforts. But the fact that no overwhelmingly largely used one has come into existence shows you the difficulty of managing this type of data at scale. And that is, you know, absolutely still a a big challenge. You focused a lot of your research on remote sensing. What's the future of remote sensing in terms of, you know, any big advances on the horizon? We've gone, you know, Landsat. What's the resolution of Landsat? 30 meters. Yeah. Yeah, so every pixel's 30 meters. And where are we today with sort of latest publicly available? And then if you look to the private sources, where are we and where are we headed? Well, I love that Landsat is still chugging along. I think we're, you know, something like 50 years for Landsat data being out there, which over time develops this great value for monitoring of different phenomena. I think I almost stepped out of remote sensing entirely saying, oh, this is, you know, pretty stagnant fields. I don't see, you know, altogether too much innovation happening in it and got discouraged before the CubeSat revolution came in and started and was happening there. And just before we move on for the audience benefit, how do you define CubeSat? Sure. So these are smaller satellites that are put up at a lower cost. Usually the benchmark for that is on the scale of a a couple million dollars at most for the cost of the satellite hardware versus, you know, a a billion dollar program that common government satellites will be part of. Right. Okay. So, sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. So CubeSats revolutionize things in terms of what dimensions? Just in terms of the amount of data that we're getting back from observations of the land surface, right? And agriculture is 38% of the world's ice-free land surface. And so there's a great benefit to ag that's outsized to other industries and other places. 
Now, the newest frontier that I see with a lot of this is SAR, so Synthetic Aperture Radar, and how that is able to punch through clouds and see anything from trenches in warfare going on to the height of different crops and how that might have been affected by bigger storms that have come through and things that an optical sensor wouldn't be able to capture. So adding that information to what's existing will, I think, hold some pretty large returns in certain areas. When you think about the sort of power and actionability of observations made with remote sensing, give us a sense for the kinds of observations you can make and actionability of Landsat at 30 meters per pixel. And at what point do you get down to observing, you know, individual plants and what can you do with this information? Yeah, now a lot of that promise was academic me talking. Let's go back into, you know, industry me. And if I think of, say, six-pass corn and that system, there's not much action to take in mid and late season. And so there are so many times where you'll talk to a farmer and say, oh, I really love this bit of imagery, but I'm watching my crop die in slow motion and I don't have irrigation there. So what good is that necessarily doing me? And that's where I think a lot of the innovation in the space has hit a head wall of negative feedback. I think that when I look at a system, one of the hard lessons I've learned is to be kind of lowercase c conservative and to say, hey, there's usually a good reason that how it currently operates exists, why the simplicity of six-pass corn persists, and that the opportunities for additional data to change that system are unfortunately decently limited in its kind of simplicity. And that really trying to find ways of adding your innovation to that mix without making more complexity for the farmer is one of the most important things that an agricultural entrepreneur can do. When you're talking about six-pass corn, you're talking about six times that a farmer goes through the field with a machine. Yes. You know, I think the farmers listening caught that. Other audience may not have been familiar with that. May be surprised that in a year-long growing cycle that a farmer may only be going through the field this, you know, small handful of times. And I've Maybe you're even including a tillage pass in there. You know, it can be, certainly there are three or four pass programs that are pretty common. I've done a lot of four pass programs. So, and for the farmers listening, you know, it's useful just to reflect for a moment, just how many levers do I have if I'm going through the field four times or five? Yeah, I was trying not to over-exaggerate the simplicity of the system. And I think there's also a question of how complex a machine am I willing to take on those passes where if something on that machine fails because I'm putting down three things at once, I have to stop. And that reduces the resilience of, you know, say, what I'm doing around planting time. And those breakdowns are super costly. Adding that complexity is super costly, even when you are adding an additional pass. Yeah. And when I hear you talk about six-pass corn, I'm not hearing a commentary on simplicity. What I'm hearing is a reflection on the reality of commodity farming, which is you can't afford to go out every day like you could in maybe a high value permanent crop or horticultural crop. Like this is a necessity of a bushel of corn is 56 pounds and is valued somewhere between five and six dollars, growing maybe 200 of those on an acre. You can't go out there every day. And so every time you go out, the timing has to be right. The decision of what you're applying has to be exactly right. In some ways, it makes it more complicated than if you could go out every day and do a cleanup 
exercise. You got to nail it. Yeah, and I mean, like, that's part of the miracle and marvel of modern agriculture is that, you know, say the corn price at close yesterday was the same price as the you know market average year from 1997. And on an inflation-adjusted basis, sorry, that's often a big challenge on the farming side. My cousin, if he describes some of the financials to other folks that aren't operating on a take out a big operating loan, hope out to out earn it. It's an insane way to run a business when you really describe it to somebody that I'm just saying some spitball figures that you might be taking out a million dollar loan and getting 1.1 million back on it is a crazy, crazy way to earn $100,000 versus uh, W-2 income and sitting behind a desk. Obviously, there's a whole bunch of nuance to that. But when folks are living on that low margin of a system, the attitude towards outsiders saying, here's an additional piece of complexity to add to your life is just not necessarily and always a positive one, even if on the face of it say, oh, yeah, that's something that interests me or you get a seemingly positive bit of feedback as an entrepreneur. Yeah, if I was going to kind of take the counterpoint there, not just that, you know, farmers like pain or risk, you know, I think in commodity production, some of the rationality is that we're dealing with an exchange traded commodity that I can hedge. I don't have market risk on that. All I, I need to produce it. And I've got a very solid crop insurance program that basically kind of the totality of risks I can protect against. So still definitely it's not a get rich quick scheme, but there are some risk mitigants in producing commodity crops that you just don't have in other businesses. That's fair. And I think that that low margin setup is one of the profound reasons for crop insurance to continue to be such a strong safety net for commodity producers. Getting a bit far afield here into the policy side, I think that trying to get similar programs into crops that people eat more commonly and into what we call specialty is one of the big policy challenges in our food system is is those are much harder to cover with these programs. Mm -hmm. As we talked to you today about many aspects of farming from a micro standpoint, a macro standpoint, your passion runs pretty deep. You obviously have the connection to the family farm in Iowa, but I was wondering what else is it in your history or family history that has really driven this really pure passion that you've got for trying to improve farming and yield gap analysis work that you've done? Yeah, my Mom's side came to Iowa and busted out the prairie in the 1800s, so relatively early on there. My dad's side, though, didn't come to Iowa until the 1950s when there was a farm labor shortage during the Korean War. A lot of people had gone off, and the U.S. government helped bring over folks from war-torn Europe to serve as farm help. And... My dad was born in a refugee camp where he was raised on wheat that had come over from U.S. farms. And so I have one of those bags of flour that was like infant clothing for my dad that hangs above my desk and that helps me maintain motivation when some of the challenges I presented today get a little bit rough as an entrepreneur or as a consultant in the space. Chris, any topics that excite you that we haven't gotten to today? I think that we've had, you know, a sufficiently wide-ranging conversation. I think one of the biggest things to me is just that overall message that while some folks can take a look at data and projection going forward and have some very grim what would happen if we didn't adapt prognostications that would come back from it, the human story is one of adaptation and so much of the 
literature that's now coming out to say, this is the change that we would make to a system. And this is how we will keep up agricultural productivity in the face of higher temperatures is one of inspiration and one of hope, which is not to say that there's a lot of hard work to be done. And there are still more innovations that we will need as an industry to fulfill the world's demand for food, fuel, and fiber. But I do have confidence that we will get there. Great. Well, Chris, really appreciate you coming in and spending time with us today. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fall Line Field Notes. We're your hosts, Clay Mitchell. And Eric O'Brien. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about agriculture and the future of our food system, please visit us on the web at fall-line-capital.com slash fieldnotes. You can link to our other podcast episodes and read our latest thoughts on the cutting edge of farming and technology. 